It is, uh, it is definitely the heart of uh, the pastors here that as we go through different series in preaching that we don't just move from one to the other and, and kind of like, okay, we're done with that one now, let's move on to this one. We really want to have the, the mindset that what we're doing is building upon what we've already looked at, what we've already studied and learned together. So this morning we're transitioning into a, a new series, and this is, uh, Lord willing, what we're going to be doing for the next three months through the end of January. We're going to be looking at a psalm every week, but I'm calling this a preaching and prayer series because our goal isn't just to look at the psalm and, and, and preach it, but we want to pray it together as a church. So every week when we look at one of these psalms, we're going to have a, a prayer leader who's going to come up as part of our worship and is going to lead us to corporately pray through the psalm. And I want you to, if you have one of the worship guides, if you'll look on the front where Psalm 8 was uh, printed out, I have there some series goals, three goals for this series. And you will see that each one of these goals is based on something from Colossians. Something that we just studied, because again, we just want to build on where we've been. And I use this little acrostic gap, if you will, GAP, just to help us remember these goals, as in standing in the gap, another term of intercession. So one of our goals is that we want to grow up in the wisdom uh, of the Lord through the Psalms. And this is what Colossians told us to do. The prayer from Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10 was that the church would be filled with the knowledge of God, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we would know how to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord and pleasing to Him. So we want to know more about God, understand more about God, and have wisdom on how to apply that to our lives so that we can live in a way that glorifies Jesus, in a way that magnifies His name, in a way that is pleasing to Him, and in a way that bears fruit. We should want to live in a way that is going to bear the much, as much fruit as possible in this life. So that's goal number one, that we will look at a psalm every week and see what we can learn from it to grow up in the knowledge of God. Secondly, in this series, we want to abide in prayer when we gather. I don't... I don't want us just to have this moment in the service where, oh yeah, that's when we pray. Someone comes up and says a prayer. And, and sometimes maybe I, I'm listening and sometimes maybe my mind is wandering. Like I want us to take a little bit of what we do at our Rely service every month in our prayer meeting and bring it into Sunday morning. And that after we look at this psalm that as a church, as with as much as we can discipline ourselves to have one mind and one heart that we pray together, we abide in prayer. Colossians 4.2 told us, stay steadfast in prayer. Be watchful in it. I want us to be a vigilant and watchful church praying together, watching over our lives, watching over our church, watching for Christ and what He's doing. And then third, the third goal is I want us to all practice the personal habit of praying the Scriptures. I want everyone here to, to be stirred by what we do as we gather and throughout the week to start making it, if it's not already, a personal daily practice of prayer 
but being led by the Spirit of God and the Word of God as you pray. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 told us, if you've been raised with Christ, if you're a Christ follower, set your mind on the things above where Christ is. Think upon heavenly things, not just earthly things. How do we keep our prayers from being just about earthly things? We should certainly pray about that. We should pray about health and our jobs and finances. We should pray about those things. Pray for those who are sick. But how do we keep our prayers from just being four, five, six prayer requests that are on our minds? How do we get our minds set on Christ and His kingdom and what He's doing and pray toward those things? I believe it is using the Scriptures to guide our prayers. What about when you pray and your mind starts wandering? And you're, you're, you don't really know what to pray and how to stay on track. And sometimes you feel like your, your prayers are just all over the place. The Word of God helps steady our minds. So I want us to learn how to do that. To pray by the Spirit through the Word. So these are our goals for this series. And I pray... Just this year, this 21 days of prayer for me was a significant time. The Lord really did something in my life and, and my to help me in, in my abiding with Christ in the in this year's 21 days of prayer. My my hope and what I was asking the Lord this morning is that these three months of going through Psalms together, praying different Psalms together, I think we're going to look at 13 or 14 of them, that this will be significant for us that when we leave out of this series, that these goals, we will have grown in Christ, we will have learned to abide in prayer together so much that it changes Sunday mornings about how we pray together from now on and that we are all learning to pray and pray God's Word on a daily basis. So the Word says we should pray that God will fulfill every desire that we have that is for good, and every work of faith that we try. And so I, my prayer is that He will fulfill these things. Inside your worship guide, you will see two parts, a prayer guide and a preaching guide. So the preaching guide is what you're used to, so the notes for the sermon today. But on the left is a prayer guide. These four questions, they may change sometimes. As a matter of fact, if, if you have some suggestions of, of primer questions that people can use that would be good for the church as we try to pray through a psalm, let me know that. Uh, I definitely would be interested. But I've got four questions here that's really intended for you to use. Like, okay, if I'm going to take Psalm 8 and I'm going to pray it, how do I get started? And so there's four questions on the left that you can use at the end of the service today or this week. I hope you will consider taking it and praying through Psalm 8. And there's four questions there you can use to help guide you in your praying. And on the right-hand side is our preaching guide. We're going to begin walking through the Word and asking the Lord to reveal Himself in the Word, and then we're going to pray it together as a church. So, Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for the gifts that are in Your people. Thank You, God, for freedom in Christ. Father, I pray that You have received sincere worship this morning that it has been an offering to You that is pleasing and acceptable in Your sight. I pray that that 
offering will continue now as we put our mind on your word, as we seek to learn it together, and as we desire to pray it together. I ask that you will teach us about yourself, your kingdom, your son, your spirit. I ask that you would teach us about our lives. I pray, God, that we would grow in our knowledge of you in spiritual wisdom and understanding and that we would know how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, and that you would let this church bear good fruit as we strive to be a house of prayer. I ask this morning that you would anoint us to hear your word and learn from it. I pray that you will help me to preach in Christ, not in the flesh. I ask that you would give unction to my words and you would give power to our hearing. I ask that you'd protect us from distractions and even just the basic things, God, of wandering minds and short attention spans. And I pray you would capture us with your word this morning. And Father, as we pray together, I ask that you would lead us into the right prayers and that you would hear them and answer them. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 8, the Psalm of David. In the preaching guide, if you are a note taker and you want to fill these in, we're going to start with this kind of foundational statement. God's glory is established in all creation. He is present always and everywhere. God's glory is established. That word I want to convey to you that it is not moving, it is not changing. In all creation, God is present. He is present always and He is present everywhere. In verse 1, the psalmist starts, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set Your glory above the heavens. When you read that, maybe your mind goes to the reality that the name of God Yahweh is not proclaimed in all the earth. The gospel has not been taken to all the corners of the earth. And that there are many places on the earth where God is not worshipped and God is not praised. So what does it mean that your name is majestic in all the earth? And what does it mean that God has set His glory above the heavens? When there are so many people who don't look up and who don't glorify Him. And what we learn right away and what we need to understand is that God's name is majestic whether a single person on earth ever worshipped Him or not. His name is not made majestic by what we say or by what, what we say about Him or what we say of Him. We are not who makes God majestic. He is majestic and His name is majestic in all the earth. And His glory is established. If if every person on earth, as A.W. Tozer said, became blind, it wouldn't change the glory of the sun. And if every person on earth was an unbeliever, it would not change or alter the glory of God. It is established. It is set. Does anybody know the deepest place on earth? Shout it out if you do. Marianas Trench. 
The deepest place in the Marianas Trench is called the Challenger Deep, almost seven miles below water level is the Challenger Deep. In the history of the world, in human history, 27 people have been to the Challenger Deep. Do you know the glory of God is constant, constantly present and active in every grain of sand and every molecule of water in the Challenger Deep, whether a person sees it or not? In Colossians 1, when it told us that through Christ all things have been made, for Christ all things have come into existence, and in Him all things hold together. The presence of Christ is in the challenger deep holding it together. It matters not if only 27 people in the history of the world have been there for a total of a few hours. It doesn't change His glory. It doesn't change His name. He is present everywhere and always holding all things together. But what will happen is what we see happen in Psalm 8. In your notes, is that godly people will often contemplate God's works and be humbled. There will be people on the earth who will ascribe to God's name the glory that it is due. There are always going to be the people of God that will see His glory and be humbled by it. God did not set everything into motion and send Jesus to the earth in hopes that some people would glorify Him, in hopes that some people would believe. There will always be people that God calls to Himself who will respond in faith and who will ascribe glory to His name and who will honor Him. Godly people, and if you are one of those, if you consider yourself a godly person who believes in Jesus, you will contemplate the works of His hands and you will be humbled. Look at verse 3 and 4. The psalmist says, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You have set Your glory above the heavens. When I look at Your heavens, the works of Your fingers, the moons and the stars which You have set in place, what is man that You are mindful of him? And the son of man that You care for him? First of all, church, look up! God has created things for us to see His beauty. Look and contemplate it. We we live in such an amazing time. I am a fan of, of the time that we live in and what God has given us. Monday night, we were at a... At a, at a church family's house and we were spending time with them and it was wonderful. And two other families came to my mind while I was there I wanted to reach out to. I grabbed my phone, I texted them. Both of them responded in a couple of minutes and I connected with them that way. In years past, I wouldn't have had that capability to connect that easily. I'm so thankful for that. But do you realize if we're not careful, we become a generation of people 
that are enthralled by the things that we believe we've created more than we are by what God has done and made. Now, it's all from Him. The phones in our hands, we did not devise and come up with without His help. When He told us to subdue the creation, it literally meant make it work for you. We don't create matter. We are just learning how to make that matter work for us, which is what God designed. But it's so easy to become enthralled by what we think man is doing. Oh, what do you think that new car is going to be like? What do you think that the, 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 the next technology on homes is going to be? What do you think that, how, how big is the screen going to be on the next phone? Is it going to fold or not? What, what, what's that tablet going to be like? We, we get so excited about that. Do you look at the moon? Do you look at the stars? Do you look at the sunrise? Do you look at the sunset? Do you look at the changing leaves? Do you feel the breeze on your face? Do you look at His creation? Do you honor Him? Are you amazed at the works of His hands? Do you look at people and your children and grandchildren and your your spouse and, and those around you and are you amazed at the glory of God that you see? The works of His hands. That's what the psalmist did. When I look at your heavens and the works of your fingers, the moons and the stars that you have set in place, I think, what is man that you are mindful of him? What? What is a man that you are mindful of him? Do you ever get humbled by that? How small we are in this great, big earth this little speck of time that we exist in this little plot of land that we live on in this giant universe not an astronomy expert and things like that but i i've read that some of the light that we're seeing today is coming from stars that don't even exist any longer because that's how far away they are That's how vast the universe is. Do you ever think about how small we are and be humbled by that? And then realize from God's Word, He is mindful of you. Do you know what that means? You occupy God's mind. Not to elevate you as the only thing he's thinking about or the most important thing on earth, but he thinks of you. God, who calls the stars out at night by name, he is mindful of you. He thinks of you. You occupy the mind of God. And he cares for you. He is concerned for you. I read on Facebook this week, so one of my Facebook friends posted about how, and I understood what they were saying, but they were talking about how if we think God is, is concerned about these little tasks and things that we're doing all the time, then, then we, have, we have much too big of an idea of who we are and too little a mindset of who God is. And I just read that and thought, I, I don't, I don't get that. 
I read this, and what I read is that God is mindful of us and He cares for us. And He's concerned about our lives. He doesn't just show up for the big things and the big decisions. He is mindful of who we are. He cares about what's happening with us. Do you believe that? And are you humbled by it? In your notes, the godly often contemplate His works and are humbled. Take time to ponder what God has done and what He is doing. Sit down. Go for a walk. Build some time into your schedule to put your mind on the works of God in creation and in your life. And be humbled that in this great vast universe, He is mindful of you and He cares for you. And learn in your notes, learn to not take for granted God's concern for you and His care over you. Learn not to take it for granted. That's what David says in in verse 4. His mind is, who am I that you're mindful of me? And the Son of Man that you care for me. When you start contemplating how big the universe is, how big God is, yet He is mindful of you and He cares for you. And He cares about, yes, the littlest things of your life. He cares. He's concerned for you. Don't take that for granted. How would you take it for granted? One way is you walk away from it. 2 Corinthians 6.1 Paul says, as an appeal to the church, don't receive the grace of God in vain. To know the care that God has over you, to know the concern that He has for you, and then to walk away from that is to take His grace in vain. It is to say, it really means nothing to me. To walk away from God's concern for your life and His care over you is to say, that's not meaningful to me. I can take care of myself. I can be concerned for myself. And if there is anyone in this room or watching this later who is at that place of almost giving up and walking away, don't. Don't take the love of God for granted. Don't take His grace in vain. Abide with Him. Cling to Him. Another way to take it for granted is to use it when you need it. God will be there for me. I know He's concerned for me. I know He cares for me. And when things are going bad and I don't have it together and I'm stressed and I'm worried and I don't know what I'm going to do, I cling to Him. I run to Him. But then when things get better and I don't see danger on the horizon or I'm not stressed or I'm not struggling, I tend to just kind of do my thing and live my life. So I run to God and then I run away from Him. And I come back to Him and then I leave again. I think that is to take His mindfulness of you for granted. 
is to take His care over your life for granted. Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes we cling to God in our prosperity when things are going well and we thank Him and praise Him and we're grateful. And then sometimes when things start going bad, we start doubting and we pull away. Does He really love me? Does He really care for me? That's to take His concern and His care for granted. It's to assume that He's only seeing about you when everything is lined up right. So you go to Him. And it's to assume that He's forgotten about you when things are not going well. Godly people learn to contemplate the works of God's hands and be humbled and never take His concern for granted. To say in their prosperity, God, this is a blessed season. Thank you. Because it is only because you are mindful of me and care for me that I am blessed. And it is to go to Him in our struggles and say, God, I don't know what's happening right now. I don't know why I'm going through this. But one thing I know is you are mindful of me and your care is over me. When we do that, we're not taking Him for granted. God's glory is established in all of creation. The godly contemplate His works. They are humbled by it. They learn to not take His concern and care for granted. And they learn that unashamed prayer and praise is their true strength in this life. They learn that unashamed prayer and praise is their true strength in this life. I wrote that intentionally. I'm not trying to have bad grammar. I am putting prayer and praise as a singular act that we do. I believe prayer and praise is far more connected than sometimes we, we imagine. If you want to make a correction in your notes, it's not supposed to say verse 3 there. It's supposed to say verse 2 there. And here's verse 2. The psalmist says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. What does that mean? There are many commentators that, that give life to this through talking about its application, the people of Israel and their, their praise of God in the midst of the Old Testament world and, and the Gentiles who had not yet come to know Him. But I, I want to take it for face value for a moment. David is saying that God has done something establishing strength that can be used or that is to come because of foes and that will steal the enemy and the avenger. Strength that God gives us that He has established on the earth because there will be enemies, there will be problems. So He has established this strength and given it to His people. And this particular strength will still the enemy, cease the enemy and the avenger, battling them and fighting them as they work to devour His people. And somehow we learn what this strength is by looking at babies and infants. There's something that we can learn from babies and infants that teach us about this established strength. 
So ponder for a moment babies and infants. One of the reasons that we believe, rightfully so, that babies and infants are some of the weakest among us is they they can't take care of themselves yet. They can't even communicate in terms of phrases, sentences, words. They can't tell you what they're thinking or can't tell you what hurts or what their needs are. They, They can't even tell you what they're ecstatic about. So they're weak in that way. We look at them and say they haven't yet matured. As they grow up, they'll learn the strength of communication, phrases and words. But what what strength do babies and infants have? They cry out. They're dependent on who? Not themselves. They're caretakers. The strength that an infant has is it instinctively knows when it has a need to cry, to cry out. You don't have to teach a baby to do that. You you don't teach a a, a child to cry out in their needs. They just instinctively do it. And they have a good caretaker who meets their needs. So they cry out And then someone meets the need and then they learn to trust that person. As a matter of fact, if you go through the adoption process, when we did that with Jack, one of the things that they taught us, and and I won't tell you how how much I put into this or not, I'm just telling you one of the things that we were taught, is that when you bring your adopted child home, don't have multiple people meeting their needs have the parents meeting their needs. Even if you have a bunch of siblings in the home, let the parents be the primary person that meets their needs. Why? Because that's the quickest way to establish trust with them. Infants and babies cry out in their needs. They have a caretaker that meets their needs. They learn to trust them, depend on them, and then they do what? They express gratitude. They smile, they laugh, they coo. They, as they grow, they lift their arms for you to pick them up. They learn to express gratitude. Can we learn what strength truly is by looking at babies and infants? Yes. Because we think that it is weakness that causes us to cry out in our needs. We have been taught that strength is meet your own needs, make your own way, be self-sufficient. God helps those who first help themselves, which is not in Scripture, by the way. And we think that those who depend on God for everything, who cry out for everything, Maybe they're a little weaker. And I believe God is teaching us something different there. When you get to Matthew 21, Jesus quotes this psalm in Matthew 21. And He does it at a time where He has just cleansed the temple. He has gone in and He has seen that what is supposed to be a house of prayer has been made into a den of robbers and He has cleansed the temple and He's driven out those who sold and bought in the temple and had made it a marketplace. And He has said this is going to be a house of prayer 
And then Matthew 21, it says that the blind and the lame came to him and he started healing them. And the chief priests and the scribes saw that these wonderful things were happening. And then they saw that there are these children that are crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna, son of David. They're crying out to him in praise and worship. And they became indignant. They were stuffy, indignant religious people who saw all the wonderful things Jesus was doing and saw these children crying out to him and said, they should stop. This is not what we do here. They should stop. This is not the way we should act. They should stop. Who are you to receive that praise? So they go to Jesus and they say, do you, do you hear them? Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus says, yeah, I do. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Something interesting Jesus does there. In Psalm 8, it is established or prepared strength. God has established and prepared strength for His people. And Jesus says in Matthew 21, He changes the wording a little bit. You have prepared praise. What does that mean? Praise is the strength of God's people. Prayer is the strength of God's people. It is you and I learning as the people of God to look up at the glory of God established over the earth, to see His name majestic in all the earth, to be humbled by the fact that He is mindful of us and He cares for us, and for our response to be to cry out to Him for everything. And to know that He will meet our needs and to praise Him unashamed. To praise Him. That is the strength of God's people. It is not to come and go when we think we need Him. It's not to handle 90% of the things by ourselves and then come to God when we just realize we're stumped. It is to rely on Him for everything. That's the strength of His people. It is to praise and not to be worried in the temple when there are people saying you shouldn't be doing that. The children were crying out from their hearts in sincere, in sincere worship. And Jesus said, yes, I hear them. That is strength. You think it's weakness, it's strength. I love what Sam said this morning. And I want you to know that that is truly our heart if it is sincere worship. That's what we want here. And if sincere, authentic worship for you is to bow down quietly, stick your nose to a wall, get on the floor, bow your head, kneel, and that is how you express worship. Do it with all your heart. If you are a person that expresses joy and praise, singing loudly and shouting and clapping. Do it with all your heart. A strong church is not a church that's decided we're going to be one or the other. It's a church that makes room for both in the diversity of God and His kingdom. I think the bigger danger though is those of us who would be a little more expressive and loud and shouting in worship, but we don't do it. 
We might look at something like what happened this morning and we might be tempted to say, oh, that was cute. All of us mature adults learning how to be reverent and all the, the children who are not yet mature dancing around and singing and being worshiping that way. But what, what does God see when He looks? Who does He say is the weak and the strong? The thing about kids is they've not yet learned to care what people think. The world trains you to care about what other people think when it comes to how you pray and how you worship. All we're saying is, if God lays it on your heart, and it's not against His Scripture, and going to in some way cause confusion in the church that would pull from Him, be sincere in your worship. That is the strength of God's people. And not just in this place, but wherever you go. You feel led to pray for someone? Be bold about it. You feel led to share a scripture? Be bold about it. Don't be ashamed. Prayer and praise. Someone says, how are you going to handle that problem? And in your mind you think, I'm going to pray. But I don't, well, I don't say that. No, say that. That's the strength of God's people. And I want you real quick to compare this to the ungodly, Romans chapter 1, because I want you to see the comparison. I want you to understand. This is, this is in many ways, it, it, it's life and death. It's, it's godly and ungodly. It's spiritual and healthy spiritual life and unhealthy spiritual life. Look at Romans 1. Look at the description, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Okay, so that now we're talking for a moment not about the godly, but about the ungodly, who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. That's praise. They don't give thanks to Him, but they have become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. And it goes on to say that the wrath of God is He gives them over to their darkened heart. Do you see the difference? The godly people look up and they contemplate the works of God and they are humbled by it. God, who am I that you are mindful of me? And they run to God and cry out to Him in their needs. And they praise Him. And yes, they will be seen as fools. They will be called the weak and unwise of this world. But the truth is, when they look up, and something in them tells them that there is a God, but they don't humble themselves. They are prideful. And they say, no, I suppress that truth. And they walk away from it. And they don't honor Him and thank Him and praise Him. They think they are wise, but they are fools. Be in the camp of the godly 
who cling to Christ and are unashamed in prayer and praise and know that's the strength of your life. And pray for the lost that their eyes are opened because one day what is foolish in this world will be wise in eternity. And we will worship and honor God forever unashamed. And I want you to see as we end the gospel in Psalm 8. So go back to verse 5 for just a moment. See the gospel in this psalm. Verse 5, You have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. You have given Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet. The psalmist is talking there about mankind. We are in this life a little lower than the angels. We don't have the the position and the authority that some of those angelic beings have, but we have been crowned with glory and honor. What is that? Because we were made in the image of God. We were made to be His ambassadors on this earth. We were made to be the ones in whom God took care of His creation. We were to have dominion over everything. Over the works of His hands. And I will say, we could preach a whole other sermon, that we should take responsibility for the dominion that we have today. We should take responsibility for the works of God's hands that He's placed in our care. Whether a garden, a piece of land, or a child, a grandchild, a a spouse, parents who are getting older and need to be taken care of, or friendships, or a church that you're leading in, the things God has given you to have dominion over lead well. But that picture from Psalm 8 is that mankind did not subdue the earth. Mankind crowned with glory and honor did not grab a hold of that image of God. Rather, they traded it. They turned from God. They were tempted by Satan to not believe God and to try and have glory through their own works. And that has entered this creation into a situation where we look and we say, we don't have complete dominion over it. It is often out of control. But the fact that the Son of Man is mentioned in Psalm 8 tells us something. Because the Son of Man is a designation for the Messiah. It is the term Jesus most enjoyed using for Himself. The Son of Man in Psalm 8 is pointing us to Jesus. And if you will look in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of Hebrews says this, It has been testified somewhere. I like that. (laughs) I think he knew where it was, but still. In Scripture somewhere, it has been said, what is a man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. And then applies it to Jesus. Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. 
but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death forever. Jesus came to do what we could not. He entered into our state for a little while lower than the angels. His divinity obscured for a time period. He entered into this life to suffer death. And in His resurrection, crowned with glory and honor that He had before His advent. But now, everything in all creation under His feet. And yes, we don't see it yet. He has not exercised that complete control yet. Although He is in authority over everything, there is still a time here where darkness and chaos and sin has an impact on the earth. But one day, everything will be under His feet. And everyone who has tasted death with Him, everyone who has set themselves aside and died to their ambitions in the flesh, died to their life in the flesh, died to their sin, and looked to Him, every one of those people, the godly, will reign with Him. And while now a little lower than the angels, one day the people of God will judge angels. Because in a way that we don't totally understand, we will reign with Christ. Have you suffered death with Him? Have you been willing to lay yourself down in order to follow after the One who has tasted death and been resurrected? He will bring you to new life if you place your faith in Him. He will give you new life if you trust Him and ask Him for that.